Wow, you are really pretty. Thanks. You know, uh, I wrote a book. What's that? It's like a long magazine. Huh? It's like the internet made out of a tree. Oh, weird. show is brought to you by audible go to audibletrial.com slash book guys and get a free book just for trying them out for one month this is the book guys show my name is paul alves and i am in toronto ontario canada and the only reason we're having a show today is because i didn't know the good friend of the show brian brushwood is performing in town tonight or i'd be there <laughs> And I'm joined, as always, all the way from Central Ohio, Professor Allen. How you doing, Professor? Hello, Pablo. Very good. And you? Very well, very well. And who knows where the Padre is? I, I see the background's different. I don't know which part of the world you're in right now, Padre. Father Robert Balasur. It, it, it appears to be a miscellaneous hotel room. Uh, oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, let's back up there for a second. How caller will travel? I'm actually on the right coast uh, this week. <laughs> doing a little uh, Padre business, and uh, then I'll be heading to New York shortly. So, uh, yeah, Padre's back on the road. You're always on the road. You're not, you're not the Vatican assassin, are you, Padre? I am not. <laughs> I do not keep my daggers hidden. I keep them out in the open. So, um, you know, when I stab you in the back, I'll do it while looking you in the face. <laughs> of course, the Jesuits not reporting to the Vatican either way, but, you know, it would be a good cover for you anyways. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So it's new, gentlemen. Uh, we're, we're here again, only, like I said, only because we're, I'm not at the Brian Brushwood show. I didn't know about it until about you know, 20 minutes ago. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen him live. That would have been fun. I know Padre sees him live all the time on NSFW. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually been trying to work out a deal because uh, we, uh, the Jesuits in the United States, we run 20, 28 colleges and universities. I would love to see him perform at each and every single one of those universities. So the last time all the university presidents got together, I went to the meeting and uh, basically showed him a clip. I said, you know, good entertainment, wholesome, nice guy, <laughs> would be great for your students. And they kind of stared at me funny. The wholesome <laughs> part may, be, may have been, uh, may have been it was pushing. A stretch. It was a stretch. Maybe I should have shown a better clip than him imaginary spanking his microphone. But, but okay, you know, putting a Bible up his nose or something. <laughs> <laughs> my bad, my bad. Now we gotta have now, him on Paul, the show soon. Now, 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 Paul, let me let me verify. The father has met Veronica, Anschwood. Are we both over two in that category? <laughs> I've, I've talked with them on the show. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to remember. I mean, for a month, I lived at the brick house. In fact, I think I had a cot downstairs. Right. So. I mean, all those all those characters rotate through the Brookhouse at some point. In fact, I, I uh, you know Veronica and what are they calling it now? It's it's Bell Block or Bo- Belmont. Bell. She'll, she'll always be Belmont to us. The, the Blockmont. <laughs> Blockmont. That's right. 
And uh, yeah, they, they both came through. I, I was supposed to be on Twit with Veronica Belmo, but she had another wedding. They are married now, but I know there's a large part of the geekosphere that is failing to acknowledge that fact. Uh, Ver- <sighs> Veronica Belmont fans and, and Stalker Association uh, likes to call this her first wedding. <laughs> oh, oh my. Oh. I'm just kidding, Veronica. We wish you, of course, all the best with your new bow. Uh, so, um, gentlemen, I, you know what? I finished the, the, the death of Johnny Ace. Loved it. I'm going to talk. I'm going to save it for next week when we have the author, Steve Bergsman on the show. We will also be playing a little bit of uh, some music clips from Johnny Ace, big star of the 1950s, and uh, talking to the author about his wonderfully researched book, The Death of Johnny Ace. So, um, I am actually between books and... I'm just going to talk about what I'm going to talk about next is In the Plex by Stephen Levy. All I know is that it's about Google. <laughs> That's it. I love going into a book there like this. There have been a handful of, uh, of books about Google. Because uh, if, if you're, I know we're not a video podcast yet, but our, the co-hosts can see my screen. This is the first thing I do to a book is remove the, all the advertisements. The whole cover comes off. <laughs> I don't want to read the synopsis. Um, sometimes I'll read the back of the book if I'm in the, in the store, but that's it. I'll get a quick glance, decide I want to read it. And I'll just rip the thing off, put it away. Uh, I, I want to go into a book fresh and just, just go at it. Especially some of the publishers like now spoil style. the whole thing. They spoil the whole I would thing have on the cover. To, I would have to say I am probably 179 degrees, maybe a full 180 degrees uh, opposite of that. I read the front. I read the back. I read about the author. I read the inside. I will read. You know, if, if you just read the whole at thing, the end of the book, you save a lot of I money. I read the acknowledgments. <laughs> I will. I will read notes at the end of the book before I start the book. Nice. I don't understand that myself, but I think I'm go. another ninety degrees from you because I actually read the Wikipedia entry first just to find out exactly what goes on. So there are no surprises. That's to consult the book of knowledge. Brilliant. And and Padre, uh, you you had a book uh, related to piracy. I know we were going to get to it last episode. And we forgot, you know, we were going to have a short episode. We went like an hour and a half or something like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we also, still didn't have enough time. Also Google related. Autobiographies. Yeah, it's Google. It's Paul Allen's idea, man. So it was his autobiography that was put out a bit over a year ago. Didn't get much traction. It, You know, the style of the book is a little bit self-congratulatory but you could forgive that because he gives you some really good inside dirt about the early silicon valley um you know one of the things that uh, I, I know a lot of people who are new to the silicon silicon valley will hear about is the pirates of silicon valley and that's why it tied into right. last week's episode and it really was that you know it was this environment where you had people who knew that all their work was derivative Everything was derivative off of stuff. In fact, there's still work that's derivative off of Xerox back in the 80s. Stuff coming out today that looks like some of the, the advanced prototype work that Xerox was doing at uh, you know their campus. Well, the book goes over how Paul Allen and Bill Gates got these ideas and, and how they improved upon ideas that they had received and how they basically lied, cheated, and swindled their way through contracts with IBM uh, to the development of Microsoft, to the development of Windows. It's, it's a fascinating read for anyone who wants to know a little bit about the history of, of the Silicon Valley and, and sort of the, the unwritten history, not filled with giants who stood in laboratories and said, I have an idea, but guys who kind of slunk around the back corners and said, I really like what he did. 
let's see how we can copy it. Right. Um, I, I, and it's one of these books where I think if people read about read it, maybe a lot of the fanboyism and the death to copiers uh, mentality that seems to be so prevalent right now right. might die down a bit, and people might realize, you know what, this is not new. This has been happening forever, uh, and and that your job is to just to make a better product. Right. This is this has been happening since the day of uh, you know Ford's uh, Model T came off the assembly line. I mean, right. Our cars look the same. They have a steering wheel. They've got a windshield. And and if our patent laws were so stringent that, you know, the first guy that put out that vehicle, you know, the the Mercedes Benz people over in Germany, you know, then we never would have had a car industry in North America. I mean, people have to look at it. like I mean, even uh, Windows uh, is derivative of the original Mac uh, operating system. I mean, they didn't call right. it Windows, but uh, Microsoft took that idea and and really made it better. And really dominated the market for you know thirty forty years. It doesn't mean they copied it; they just saw an idea and they made it better. So right, yeah. And actually, there was a there was a later there was an article that was released by Paul Allen, um, and it, he sort of forwarded some of the topics that he brought up in the book. And he was specifically talking about Apple and Microsoft and about some of the bad blood and how it got buried. And how when he looks at something like the iPhone right now, he actually, he likes the iPhone. He likes the design that, that Apple puts into it. But he looks at it as a symbol of the broken patent process. Because for some reason, because Apple has become so popular with the iPhone, people are just assuming that they invented it. He's like, wait a minute, you know, what about the Palm? What about the, the right. Pocket PC? What about all these devices that came before that, that were the foundation? Clearly, they weren't as popular, but... Of course, anyone who's followed the Silicon Valley knows that the work is derivative. Of course. I mean, uh, the, the yeah. popularity of the iPhone comes from not, they didn't invent any of the technology in the, in the first iPhone. They just right. took a bunch of things that people had already invented, put them together in a way that it worked well together. And uh, you got this little portable computer that was easy to use. I mean, I've had a Windows, uh, what do they call them? The Windows portable. I mean, we're yeah, talking like 90s, early 90s. And they were clunky, but you know what? It was nice to have a computer in your pocket. But right. I mean, getting that you know blue screen on your phone kind of sucked too. So <laughs> they took that concept and made it. You know, a lot of even myself looking at the original phone said, "Hey, this is uh, too simplistic." But it's the sim- simplicity of the apps that makes it work. That makes it the Audible app work and the Kindle app work. Uh, it's not overloaded with stuff. Everything's derivative. That's, in- that's uh- <laughs> Interesting that you said you know the book really didn't catch on, and it and it really didn't. I think so. Paul Allen is sort of one of the one of the forgotten guys from Silicon Valley. Obviously, you've got you've got uh, you know uh, Gates and and Steve Jobs, and even you know and even Wozniak showed up on Dancing with the Stars a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, and 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 the Google guys, and 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 maybe even the Yahoo guys get a little more cred than Paul Allen. He sort of left the business. Did some other mm-hmm. investing. He owned some sports teams. He's sort of, you know, out of the tech biz. And, and whether that means he's off the map of, you know, off the radar screen of, of fans of technology because he's doing other non-tech businesses now. You know, but yeah. but his 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 contributions, good and good and ill, or or however you want to, uh, you know. But, uh, but let's judge be honest. Them. I mean, sort of once you've uh, achieved what he has, and you're sitting there with a billion dollars in the bank. There is that temptation to stop working 80 hours a week and maybe right. enjoy some time on the beach. You know, a lot of artists have done it from, uh, I think Billy Idol sold his catalog and disappeared off the face of the earth. I think he sold his catalog for like 50 million. Um, 
you know, the, J.K. Rowling has disappeared for a little while now. She's got a new book coming out. We'll talk about it later. But, you know, she did take some time off. Like, everyone back off. I'm out of here. And the funny thing about Paul Allen is, I mean, yeah, he kind of disappeared from the, from the industry in that he pulled away from Microsoft. But he's been behind the scenes on so many things. I mean, okay, and, and this is a sore topic. And I, Leo, if you're listening to this, I'm really, really sorry. Uh, but Paul Allen was tech TV. I mean, Paul Allen, fund, he, he, he funded that idea of creating a network for tech people and then sold it to G4 and mess, 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 horrible, horrible, horrible things. So, yeah. I, I love tech TV. <laughs> I miss tech TV. Miss it to this you day. Know, you know, if folks, if you miss, that, if you miss tech TV, right now. all you got to do is go to twit.tv. Right. <laughs> tech TV is like the Terminator. It is the, the, the P-1000. It has reconstituted itself after being shattered into a million pieces, and it is now better than ever and ready to kill you. Oh, wait, okay. Scratch right. that last part. But he's also been involved in, um, uh, like, cable boxes. Uh, what, when you think of a cable box interface, when you think of, having things like cable cards, when you think about something like uh, Google TV, that came out of an incubated idea from Paul Allen's, is it was it Moxio or Rock, something like that. It was a company that specialized in cable boxes. Right. And he's got dozens of examples of him angel investing or, or directly getting involved in creating some of the tech that has grown up to the stuff we love. Absolutely. Paul looking for a jingle or something. That's me and all. <laughs> I'm always hunting for a jingle or playing with a knob. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh. Paul. So, interesting book. Uh, we should have talked about it on the pirate episode, but uh, love it. Um, it <laughs> might put it on my to read list. This is one of the great things that uh, this is why I know I know why our listeners like the show because well, even when I come here to the table, I always find something from one of you guys that I want to read. Uh, you know, I'll find myself picking up a comic book that uh, Professor Allen talked about, or book that the father or Sir Jimmy hollowed out. <laughs> One of, our, one of our listeners, uh, you know. And we are on Twitter, of course. Folks, uh, I am Paul the Book Guy on Twitter. And uh, Prof. Padre is Padre SJ. Padre SJ. And I am Professor Allen, A L A N. Professor Allen. Professor Allen. One F, two S's. <laughs> For those of you who like can't that. spell Professor. <laughs> yeah, and you can join us the conversation on there. We love uh, talking back. And, folks, if you send me an email, I don't know about anybody else, but if you send me an email, I'm at the limit of what we call the Dunbar number. So Dun- the Dunbar's number, it's a, it's a theory that uh, one human being can only keep track of about 150 to 200 friends. So I am still your friend, but you know what? If I don't respond to that email, it might be the 400th email I got that day. And I sort, I try my best to keep up uh, inbox zero. Just email me back. It might have got misplaced. I don't hate you. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not this evil person. Just email again. You know, we'll we'll get to your book. We'll get to your comment. We'll read it on the air. Even we the hate mail. I love the hate mail. I love the hate mail. I'm actually, I've got the reverse Dunbar number. There's a hundred people who I really, really hate, and uh, <laughs> you might be on that list. So if I continue to ignore you, there's a good chance you're on my reverse Dunbar list. <laughs> it's like Dunbar with the. Uh, with the goatee. <laughs> Dr. Evil goatee. Uh, we got some big news this week. And of course, are you ready, Professor Allen? You ready to go? Hit it. Comic books, comic books, comic books. Comic books. Big news from Marvel, I'm told. I saw the post there on bookguys.ca, Professor Allen. 
Exactly. They've got a new initiative following up with the when their big Avengers versus X Men event wraps up in a in a month or so. Re well, not rebooting, maybe not restarting, maybe not. We know they're renumbering. That's about all that they're saying. Are they they're changing re- the curtains. A lot of things. <laughs> uh, taking about twenty of their titles. It it it, it looks like you know, canceling them, restarting them with with new number ones and sort of the promises, some fresh starts, jumping on point is sort of the buzzword for comic books. You know, when a, when a, when any story has been around 20 or 30 or 40 years, you know, making it a, you know, a smooth entrance path for new, I, I got to uh, ask you, readers is tough. this, this whole rebooting the number system, I hate it to be honest with you. Cause uh, yeah. when I read about, Oh, check out green lantern 110. It's awesome. And I go pick up the wrong Green Lantern 110. Yep. I can't stand that they, re, they renumber it. It almost devalues the previous number ones. I mean, there's an old, there, there's a, you know, back in the day, you know, um, when they would come up with new characters or new ideas, they wouldn't, we're talking in, in, in the six, you know, Marvel wouldn't cancel a book and start one with number one. They would just take a book that was something else, Journey into Mystery. And at issue 130, it would start being a Thor book or, or whatever it is. Because the theory 40 years ago was, why would I start a book with number one or number two? I don't know if it's going to be around. You know, if, but, but if right. I pick up issue 130, you know, well, it's, it's been around 10 yeah. or 15 years. I know that's a reliable number, but it's, it's speculators, collectors um, uh, who seeking out number ones, et cetera, that, that have made sort of the uh, number ones much more desirable and much more confusing as, as Paul pointed out. I got to ask you this. Um, I know that retcons have been around in comic books forever. In fact, from when I was immersed in comic books. What does retcon mean? Retcon is the short form of retroactive continuity definition. The common situation in fiction where a new story reveals things about events in previous stories, usually leaving the facts the same, thus preserving continuity, while completely changing their interpretation. For example, revealing that a whole season of Dallas was a dream was a retcon. There was always fine-tuning of a, a hero's backstory or changing the level of his power to make it not so all-encompassing. That, that, that was normal. But did we have any of this wholesale sort of like universe rebooting until they started doing it in the movies? Hmm. I mean, were the movies, were the, movies the, the, the point at which we now accepted taking the entire established backstory of either a hero or a hero team and just killing it, starting it over? Uh, you know, I'm, that's, I'm thinking... That's, yeah. That that uh, that could very well be. You know, the interesting thing is, you know, you take something like, and you, you mentioned a movie franchise's father. You take something like James Bond, where they've been able to seamlessly put in myriad actors, stories, occasional. Really, the Daniel Craig was probably the closest to an actual reboot. Uh, but before that, different actors playing the same, and it was never commented on in universe. And certainly for fans, that was never an issue. Maybe I, you know, might be something specific about the comic book fan mentality that might be different from from the movie fan mentality, where things like that. I, I know, you know there's always again, been that, this, that this serialized subtle. nature. I mean, James Bond is the great example of 
of not needing a retcon any any time there's a new actor. But if it's Spider-Man, if it's Batman, we have to tell the origin <laughs> again. Right. Now, I think there's always been a, a subtle kind of retconning going on because uh, much like cartoons in the comics, nobody ages. Yet the the entire universe ages around them. So Superman's always been 34 years old. Uh, although, you know, in Superman, you know, Action Comics 1, you know, the first one he was in, uh, you know, he's wearing a fedora. He's in the 1940s. And all the way up till now, he's still 34 you know, or 30, right. 30-ish. You know, the, the, you know, the and tricky he's using thing, an iPhone. You know, or you get, you know, and, 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 and it, it, it is subtle. You get, you know, Iron Man, you know, who originally was captured in World War II, and then he was captured in Vietnam, then he was captured in the Gulf War, and now it's Afghanistan, and, yeah. and in 10 years it will be something else. In the Canada-U.S. Uh, war? We're ready for you, man. (laughs) (laughs) For Iron Man, the extremist backstory, is that the latest? I've lost track of which one. Probably until next month. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But let me give you a counterexample of sort of the the problem when you don't do that, and that is the series of novels, of which I'm a fan, by Sue Grafton, her detective, Kinsey Milhome. These are the ABC um, JS for Jesuit. Um, I'm almost certain that was not it. Uh, <laughs> but that's, I think U is for Undertow. I think V is for Vengeance was the last one. Right. I think V was the last one. And the problem with those novels is that she did, has not aged her character. They're taking place in, in, in real time. And so when A is for Alibi was released in late 1980s, they took place in late 1980s. They were current novels. And every year she wrote a novel, which took place, you know, a month or two after in the life of the character. So those novels, over the 22 novels, maybe 25 years that she's written them, it's become a period piece. The novels still take place in 1988, 89, 90. You know, she's aged a few years. Uh, but because she wanted to be, you know, so um, she, she didn't do the soft reboot uh, with her character and continually ager so it has become it's become a period piece a series that started as contemporary novels because of the nature of time and so she's calling on there no it's it, it's a world without cell phones it's a world of pay phones it's a world of and it has a very retro feel that the first two or three novels five ten novels in the series did not have a retro feel because they weren't taking place in the decades ago past can I, can I make a quick uh, prediction right now? One of these that's not going to go too much past, like episode 10 or issue 10, FF, which is Ooh. a futuristic version of the Fantastic Four. Uh, substitute team handpicked by the real deal. Ant-Man, Medusa, She-Hulk, and Miss Thing stand ready to guard Earth and the nascent future foundation for four minutes. Um I don't know. I would, I would, well, now the next Marvel movie that's coming out is Ant Man, so they have they have uh, incentive to keep that book and other Ant Man related titles around. Right. So it will certainly get the big marketing push. Are they calling it Ant Man? So will he not be growing in size in this one? That's what they you know they they showed they showed some uh, some Sorry. footage at San Diego some Spoiler test alert. footage of, of the Ant Man movie. Giant Man, the same. Got to put a spoiler cloister bell in there. <laughs> so I see Iron Man decked out in his new black suit. Now, Iron Man's always changed suits, so that's, you know, 
nothing really new. I mean, other than the extremist is the fact that the suit is part of him and grows out of him. And I think it's hidden in his colon or something when he's, when he's Tony Stark. It just comes all of his bones, not in his colon. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it just grows out of him. He doesn't have to carry the little suitcase anymore. It's an upgrade. But it looks, it looks interesting. There's some interesting titles. I think I might have to pick some of these up and uh, follow along with this new era of Marvel. Indestructible Hulk. And, hmm. Yep. There, there's some it, 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 interesting ideas there for sure. Now, I don't know if being indestructible is good for a superhero. I mean, I know Superman ran out of uh, people to fight after a while, and they had to. That's when they retconned and invented kryptonite. Right. That's right. They, 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 that, uh, they uh, actually, uh, uh, you mentioned that in uh, just listening to uh, a podcast, uh, Golden Age Superman, and uh, he, he, the, the host uh, mentioned that there was a kryptonite story, I think it was called K Metal, that was scheduled to run in something like Superman issue 14 or I mean, way, way early. And uh, the uh, editorial at DC shelved the idea because they didn't want their character being weakened. And so this is 1940, 1941. Right. It wasn't until the mid fifties that kryptonite you know, sort of what was, a, was a officially a right. part of the Superman story, but they had considered bringing it in much, much earlier probably fighting back at that time against Stan Lee over at Marvel, who was producing hit after hit of uh, heroes who had flaws, just like we do. You know, one of them was a kid in high school, you know, who was trying to pay his rent and, you know, climb up walls at the same time. Which, by the way, I have to get both of your opinions on this. What is more pure, organic web shooters or mechanical web shooters? I'm going mechanical. Uh I like mechanical because it okay, shows him as being smart. It should, should, it, 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 should, it, it, yeah, it, it, it shows Peter as a budding, you know, science genius. See, I remember, that was actually one of my favorite parts about the original comic was he. It wasn't just that all these powers were bestowed upon him. He actually invented a lot of the tech that he used. I love right. that element of the story. Yeah, the little GPS tags, the spiders before yeah. GPS was invented. He had the little tags he put on people. He had his automatic camera, which didn't exist back then. And yeah, he was an inventive, creative guy, and he used his uh, inventiveness to uh, to fight the bad the bad guys. And that was uh, cool. And I remember I, there, there was there was always that plot element about he would run out of uh, web shooting fluid and he'd have to replace the cartridges. Well, when it went to organic, then he was just shooting them everywhere, stopping subway trains. With right. them. And I was like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> well, see, this Control also, your bodily fluids. It's not just the comics. We're looking at even uh, Doctor Who. Uh, before the reboot, uh, the new series, he used his mind. He, he got out of situ- He got even to get in a door. He would have to find a way to flim flam his way in the door, to scam his way in. Uh, Brian Brusher would have been proud of the original Doctor Who's, uh, the way they got in and out of things. Now it's all Harry Potter magic wand, you know, and, and you know what, if, if anyone's listening, you know, if, if Steve is listening, if anyone at the, the writing crew for, for Dr. Who is listening, stop, <laughs> please, <laughs> burn that screwdriver. <laughs> because yeah, remember, that's what killed off the, the first series. Well, not killed it off, but made it so, so, so flimsy. They actually had to remove the screwdriver for a generation of doctors because right. it was being used yeah. as it was the Star Trek tricorder. It can be reconfigured to do absolutely anything. Even and last, they, they last week's it, episode. Sorry, Padre. Well, I won't spoil it, yeah. but I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be great. He's going to find a great way to get out of this screwdriver. 
screwdriver. Bollocks. <laughs> it, it, which, is, which, which seems to be made of plutonium. Right. <laughs> Unobtainium. Unobtainium. And, and not only that, they got lazier in the writing, uh, at least Russell T. Davies did, when he brought in the psychic paper, which is a piece of paper, and he just flashes it, and it shows any ID he wants. And he got all those cool scenes where the doctor could get into a, uh, you know, a clandestine CIA lab by scamming his way in. No, now he just flicks open his paper, and there you go. It's no, I, I, I have to draw the line there, yeah. Paul. Psychic They're... paper was usually pretty darn funny. All right, it was pretty funny. <laughs> Especially when it didn't work. Only when Captain Jack was holding it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we also we got to mention this week, uh, you sent me a letter, uh, an email, Professor Allen, during the week. I hear one yeah, of your favorite I'd, podcasts. Yeah, like I said, I, I listen to a dozen comic book podcasts, probably more than that. And uh, one of them is called uh, Just One of the Guys. It's not about the 1985 movie of the same name, but is in fact about Green Lantern comic from the 1990s into the 2000s. Specifically, Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, who are two of the more underrated, or at least forgotten, <laughs> uh, yeah. men to bear the mighty, the mighty green ring. Um, and a few episodes ago, in, in one of his shows, one of the comic stores he reviewed had like a legal issue at its core. So I, I emailed him and recommended he read the book, The Law of Superheroes, which we talked about in episode 47, I think it was. So he went ahead and, and uh, listened to the whole episode, uh, which, which included the Jacob Hess, Phil Nicer interview. Is that the, the political episode? And he said really nice things about that episode, encouraged his listeners to, uh, to download our show. So if you're a comic book guy, specifically Green Lantern, it's the Just One of the Guys podcast. And you know what, gentlemen? We're going to gonna take some time to refill our coffees, uh, straighten out our microphones, maybe wash our hair, you know, whatever. <laughs> we'll play the, <coughs> excuse me, we'll play the Just One of the Guys promo and uh, take a little break. We'll be right back. And Guy Gardner is a douche. Uh, especially Guy Gardner, who was being a bit of a douchebag. Douchebag. He wasn't really listening. That's Guy's like that. thing. Yeah, but that—that's his other superpower. <laughs> Speaking of Guy Gardner, page nineteen. I resent the brain damage comment. He was just a character I found extremely grating. Wow, the internet seems to be filled with people who really can't stand the character of Guy Gardner. I mean, to some extent, they have a point. I mean, they'd read the character like I have, his adventures with the cores, so a comic run, whatever. Maybe they'd have a little more appreciation for him. I mean, there needs to be more guy love on the internet. Um, maybe not that kind of guy love. Regardless, there still has to be a way that a middle-aged man like myself with a love of comic books should be able to present a defense for an underrated character. If you build it, they will come. What was that? If you build it, they will come. Okay, strange disembodied voice. That's a great idea, but I really don't see how building a baseball field and a little bit cornfield will help with matters. I mean, I think there aren't any cornfields near here, especially once they're the owner who let me build a baseball field in. Plus, Guy was more of a football player. No, no, no. <sighs> Look, no speaks metaphor. What I meant by Bill is, oh, maybe make a podcast about it. Well, that's an even better idea. And it's a lot easier, given my farming and athletic abilities. 
I could recount all the appearances of Kai in comics. I could focus on the solo run. I could give detailed plans of this bar. And hold on, hold on, hold on, champ, champ. You really want people to actually listen to the podcast, don't you? Well, yeah. So why not start with the 1990s Green Lantern and continue on to the Reaper? That's an even better idea. I could cover the Guy Gardner solo series along the way, and also put up for a defense my second favorite GL, Kyle Rayner. Plus, really, these are the two Earth-based Green Lanterns. For whatever reason, they're really overlooked in the mass media. Plus, I've got a nearly complete runs of both series. Wow. Thanks, strange disembodied voice. No problem. Now, now, now. let's go to President Nixon. Um, you do know that Nixon has been dead for well over a decade. Oh, okay. Well, how about some Mmm, that sounds great. I love some good brownies, especially the one with the chocolate frosting on top. Or have you ever had blondies? Those are even better. I had one of those at church. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics, starting with Green Lantern number 1 in 1990 and ending with Green Lantern number 181 in 2004. During the run, I will be placing a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated members of the Green Lantern Corps. Along the way, I'll be covering the Guy Gardner comic run, some Green Lantern annuals, and whatever else takes my interest at the time. Come and listen along with me, Sean Ingold, as I make the case for the Green Lanterns who deserve a better reputation at justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. You're listening to noagendastream.com. All talk, no commercials. No agenda. And this is Richard Goodship, author of The Camera Guy on Amazon, and you're listening to The Book Guys. Book Guys! Ah, yes. Refresh my coffee. And I actually did listen to that episode, Professor Allen, and lots of fun. I mean, I'm not a, a huge fan of the Green Lantern, but they do know their Green Lantern. <laughs> I say, if you're a fan, check it out. One of the great things about podcasts in general is, you know, as opposed to say radio or other forms of audio, is you don't need a huge audience. You just need a passionate audience. You, there are podcasts about the craziest, nichiest of uh, of all forms of geekery and other topics out there. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I mean, we're a niche now. People who read books. <laughs> we're trying to fix that. Make reading fun again. Uh, so we got some book news, gentlemen. Uh, do we have any more comic stuff to talk about, uh, Professor Allen, or can we go ahead right into the general I think news? that'll do it. All right. Padre, I love your shades. Love your shades, man. Book news. Uh, I got one here. Uh, last week we were talking, or it was a week or two ago, about an uh, episode or two ago, about uh, the automatic book machines, how they're being, uh, you know, they're all over the place now. It's still not very prevalent. Uh the major one being, of course, the Espresso Book Machine, uh, which allows on-demand book. And I actually found an article from uh, today where uh, it's a, a small uh, library in Connecticut. It's all excited about this thing, and uh, they're charging $9.50 for a 100-page book. And I found a little audio clip, and a lot of people were emailing me and saying, uh, asking more about this book machine. So here's a little clip that will actually explain it all for you. Introducing the Espresso Book Machine, a fully integrated, patented bookmaking machine that can produce a library-quality paperback book in minutes with minimal human intervention. Here's how the EBM works. 
the user chooses a digital file from a web-based catalog of books, either at the physical EBM or remotely via the internet. The book can be sent and printed on any network DBM. Throughout our architecture, we use industry standard encryption to keep communications secure. The EBM uses pre-made files, the same files used in traditional book printing, a PDF for the book block and a PDF for the cover. Once in production, a four-color book cover is produced from tabloid or A3 cover stock, while a black-and-white laser printer prints the book's pages on standard letter or A4-sized paper. As they are printed, the pages are collected in the accumulator. Once printed, the pages are jogged for alignment. Then, the carriage pulls the spine of the book block over a mill to roughen the edges in preparation for gluing. A rotating wheel applies a thin layer of heat-activated glue over the milled spine. The carriage then brings these pages to the book cover on the binding table, and the EBM uses special pneumatics and clamps to press the cover against the spine and around the book block. In the final steps of the process, a clamp rotates the bound pages as a shearing mechanism uses a single carbide blade to trim the edges into a book, infinitely variable between 8.5 by 11 and 4.5 by 4.5 inches. The completed library quality paperback book is released and ready to read. The EBM can produce a perfect bound, top quality book in a matter of minutes. The direct production cost of a book is a penny per page and uses standard printer paper and toner. The EBM is fully automated and requires minimal user operation and maintenance. The EBM produces perfect bound, library quality paperback books with four color covers, indistinguishable from a factory original. The Espresso Book Machine by On Demand Books. I gotta say that a sneezing dog is not part of the actual machine. <laughs> That's an extra bonus. <laughs> That's a bonus feature. Uh, so yeah, the, if, if you folks are wondering uh, why you haven't seen any of these in your local stores, it's because uh, as of right now, there's about 80 of them worldwide. So there's not even one per city, even major city at this point. So uh, I don't know. Again, it's, uh, it produces the uh, internet uh, on a, made out of trees, like Brian said at the opening of the show. I don't know. I still, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that the catalog that's in it is not that huge. Although they do allow you to, uh, they will accept WordPress, uh, WordPress blogs, different things, different uh, PDFs. You can bring in your own PDF. Like if you only want, uh, let's say you want to send a, a, a book, a review copy or something to someone. Again, don't do that, authors. The, the publishers want them on, you know, A4 paper, <laughs> unstapled, in a box. They don't want them bound, so don't do it. It's bad, apparently, for submitting anyways. The EBM. You know, I, I'm, I'm torn on that story because um, I, I like it. It's cool tech. Um, I actually like, you know, contrary to what a lot of people might think about the, the, the tech guy, I, I actually like having books in my hand. Even though I'm a big fan of e-readers, I'm a big fan of Audible, um, that's how I consume actually the majority of my are you Are you a book sniffer, Padre? I, I kind of am. You know, there's something about having that in your hand, about, about the smell holding the paper. 
uh, this paper. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, people think I'm silly for it, but at the same time, it there is something. There's an added dimension to actually having the the content in your hands, to owning the book, to be able to to point to something and say that's mine. Yeah, um, so, I like I it mean, because that, I, I can take my book and hand it to someone. So yeah, that was an, an, an no DRM point in no DRM. That's right. Yeah, in the in in the piracy show, which I missed uh, that you guys were talking about, was this this idea of ownership, and the digital files. Tech, I mean, in a, you really don't own them. You have a license to them. You purchased a license in a particular format. I mean, that's that's what you get when you click. I agree to these terms. Right. Of course, we don't read the terms, but that's in the terms is that you're purchasing a license. And obviously, when you have a book, physical book, you have a physical book right. that can be passed on to your family. That can be lent physically, lent from person to person, uh, without, as you said, without DRM, yeah. without those issues. Now, and, the, key, and the key piece of info as, there is you agree to those terms when you buy it. So most cases, when I have the choice, I don't buy it. I don't buy the ebook. Uh, I will if I'm in a rush. If if uh, an author's coming on the show and I don't have time to get to the bookstore. Yes, ebooks mm-hmm. are very convenient. I can download to my iPad. I'd much rather buy the book because I can share it. That's all. That's all I'm seeing. Agreed. <laughs> DRM. Boo! Sir Jeff Smith, if you're listening, we need a very anti-DRM jingle. All right. Seeing red over Santa, this story out of not only the Toronto Sun, but the National Post here in Canada, it seems that Pamela McCall, an anti-smoking advocate, is very excited that they will be in most future printings of It Was the Night Before Christmas. One line will be edited. Edited out of the 1823 poem, which has remained intact for nearly, uh, what is that, 300 years? Just about, yeah. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. <laughs> so uh, Santa's depiction, what? yeah, because Santa had a pipe and he was smoking. This line will be uh, edited out of the 1823 poem uh, attributed to Clement C. Moore. It is. It's. It's public domain. They have the right to do whatever they want with it. As do we here at the Book Guys Show, and you know, normally every year. The last couple of years on the No Agenda stream, we've done, uh, I think last year we did the, uh, oh, what was it? We did um, the Nutcracker. We did the Nutcracker suite with music and all, and we, we read it live. I think this year we're going to do a reading of uh, It Was a Night Before Christmas. Why not? Can we change, like it. Can we change it so that every verse has Santa smoking? <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> Just out of protest. I don't smoke, but I mean, I'm not down for changing. I, I smoke, and I don't think children should be smoking. But uh, th- this anti-smoking advocate actually claims that uh, children start crying when hearing that line because they believe Santa's going to die from smoking the pipe. Okay, you know what? No. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, if, if children are crying because of that line, you know what? Those children weren't going to make it very far in life anyway. So <laughs> they've already been traumatized by their parents' <laughs> oh, teachings. They've been traumatized by something else. <laughs> uh, that, see, it's stuff like that that I, I understand when you make ch- uh, changes to, to literature because of social pressures. I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm not an idealist like that. But at the same time, if you're making changes like this, 
that are just nonsensical just because it fits your political agenda that's i i i i, I would I, hope that <laughs> i would hope that when they distribute it or perform it they do note that it is not that it is not in the original version they don't have to because it's public yeah. domain it's public domain they can do what they want with it that's right uh and we're gonna be touching on banned books in our next episode next monday the i believe october 1st will be the release date uh, and we will be talking some banned books. I'll be reading, rereading, sorry, Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, which I'll be honest, the first time I read it, I didn't think it was that great of a book anyways. Wasn't a, you know, culture-changing, uh, you know, novel. I actually think he wouldn't have sold that many copies if he hadn't uh, had the uh, the Ayatollah put a, you know, death warrant on him. Uh, and he's, there's, no uh, such th- there, there, there's no such thing as bad publicity, is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, he's been all over the news uh, recently in the last couple of days, uh, CBS, NBC, Fox, all the, the, the entire uh, conglomerate of uh, news stations there because uh, it's been 20 years since he uh, released his novel and he talks about his uh, 10 years he was in hiding, full hiding, with uh, actual armed guards protecting him. I'm, I believe they were American. I could be wrong. I believe he was actually being guarded by like CIA agents. <laughs> but uh, I've got a little clip from his uh, CBS... Um, News appearance, and I'll actually, I'm going to put that as an end of show clip, just because it's really, really long, but that'll be a little taste of what we're going to be talking about uh, in our next episode. Books that are banned, why they were banned, why they shouldn't be banned. I know Padre, books that are banned, Harry Potter is one of the big ones. Yes, it is. And J.K. Rowling, uh, just today, actually coming out and talking about, um, you know, her story, and uh, she's got her new book, The Casual Vacancy, which is about small town politics, coming out very, very, very soon. Uh, and I think she's going to do well with that because it's an adult novel, well, not not like bam, bam. No, it's, it's it's for adults, and uh, she's going to do well because I mean a lot of the children who grew up reading her stories are now adults and might enjoy it. Uh, but she talks about how she went through some therapy uh, uh, before releasing her writing her first book, just dealing with her breakup with her ex husband and being left as a single mom, uh, and and the therapy she had to go through after her success. Because I think a lot of people don't understand is that when you get to this kind of success so quickly, you have thousands of people trying to contact you every day trying to take your money. Uh, I have a family friend, we'll call him JF, uh, and another person with the exact same name, JF, won the lottery here in Toronto, and they won like something like $20 million. So my friend JF, he started getting calls immediately. As soon as that name went, it went in the paper, every day he had to disconnect his phone for like a week because he kept saying, look, I'm not the guy who won the million dollars, but everyone was calling him. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of them lying, a lot of them saying, you know, my, my, you know, my kid needs a, you know, an operation so he can walk again. And, you know, and how can you filter that? Who's telling the truth and who are just con artists that call every lottery winner? Now, imagine her with all her money from her books. We're talking at this point billions and every day, thousands. You know, she probably does not. There's no way she can have a listed number. It's not even, uh, you know, a thought. Can do it. So, poor woman. The fun part about uh, when you get to that level of fame is that it's not just people who are trying to take your money. I mean, you can basically deal with them. That that's why these these people get accountant, and they don't actually control their own money. So the accountant da 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 da. But the people who want to be your best best friend because they think that through your writings they found a connection and so on so on, so forth. That's the part that gets really scary. I mean, I, I we actually have had a few Jesuits who have reached. Not no J.K. Rowling's, but 
they, they've, they've done some really good work. They've become worldwide famous. And they get these weird, weird phone calls from, if we were able just to meet, I'm sure you'd see that I'm your best friend. It's like, whoa. Right. <laughs> Wait, take a step back. Yeah. yeah all, Here's all another I want you to call. Everyone comes out of the yeah. woodwork. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why athletes, you know, you, you, you can understand with athletes and musicians the the temptation, and there's obviously some wisdom behind it. doesn't always work out, uh, work out well, but the, the, of sticking with the posse. Of sticking with your old childhood friends, they're the only ones you can trust. Because even if you need a professional manager, a professional accountant, a professional whatever it is, the only people you can trust are the people who knew you before, before you were yeah. worth 147 million dollars. And you know you can certainly understand understand that thinking. And for any lottery winners, you guys that go on TV when you win your lottery, and then you come on TV and say. Yeah, I'm just going to go back to my job. You know, it's not going to change my life any. Screw you. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) It would definitely change my life quite a bit and a lot of uh, good people and friends around me. Uh, Moving on. One last story, gentlemen. The Loblaws. The Western Prize. The the Hillary Western Writers Trust Prize for nonfiction. Uh, It's one of the among the richest Canadian literary awards. Uh, you get a, basically a purse of $60,000. Uh, but now, uh, in its second year, they're upping the ante. And uh, apparently, they are going to be featuring all five top winners in that uh, contest will be uh, put into the Loblaws grocery store chain in uh, Canada, all 200 locations. So, And they say that will equiv- equivalent to about $60,000 in sales. So effectively doubling the what the prize earnings are. Great idea. So uh, the sales impact will be just as uh, about Isn't as much it true, as the Scotiabank. Though, that the, I think the the sixty thousand dollar payment isn't that made in uh, back bacon and hockey sticks though. So I'm not <laughs> we don't sure. need back. I've had this discussion with Sir Jimmy. With the thing you guys buy <laughs> called Canadian bacon, that's the crappy bacon we sell to you Americans. We eat we eat regular bacon. <laughs> that and all that that crap that comes out of the trees. What's it called? Maple syrup. <laughs> We just boil that down and sell it to tourists. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Don't make me have to start cracking about Canadian beer, eh? <laughs> uh, I have a joke to tell, but it's not appropriate. For, for, and since we've we kept it a clean a show till now, well, it's not appropriate. It's what's the difference between... I can't do it. What's the difference? No, I'm not going to forget it. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, maybe. <laughs> so join us on October 1st, Monday, for the banned books episode. Maybe we'll get some banned comic books. And uh, I have a couple ones that should be banned. Maybe I'll bring them and show them to <laughs> Professor Allen. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, guys. Thank you for joining us, Father Robert. I know you have uh, somewhere to go. Professor Allen, you have more comics to review. Let's do it. And students to teach. And join us at bookguys.ca each and every week. And go to meeting. This is great. It makes podcasting fun again. And all you got to do, I'm going to try this, Padre. All you got to do is go to gotomeeting.com, sign up for the trial, and use the promo code ENTERPRISE. And they'll hook you up with a trial. It's awesome. Spot on. Podcasters, stop using Skype. I'm telling you. Go to meeting. See you next week, folks. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Paul the Book Guy will be back next week. Same book time, same book channel.
1989, after Salman Rushdie published the Satanic Verses, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against Rushdie, forcing him into hiding for nearly a decade, fearing for his life. 23 years later, as new violent protests rage throughout the Middle East as the result of perceived insults to Islam, Rushdie's name has popped up again. Rushdie's latest book is a memoir, Joseph Anton, his alias at the time, and it tells the story of his life as a marked man. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you. In 1989, when the Ayatollah Khomeini issued this fatwa, essentially condemning you to death, Mm -hmm. did you understand immediately what was happening? Pretty quickly. I mean, not uh, initially we had a little confusion. We didn't know if this was just rhetoric or if it was something somehow going to be backed up with actual force. But the trouble with with Khomeini's regime is that they actually had professional killers who did this, you know, who did this to, who killed members of the opposition and so on, in, even in Europe. So it was, became very clear very quickly that it was a real threat. You essentially go into hiding then for nearly a decade, living yeah. like a prisoner. What was that like? Well, I mean, it's just bizarre, I think, for uh, anyone, any individual, let alone a writer, to suddenly essentially be plunged into a spy novel. You know, that, that's, I, mean, I was surrounded by secret policemen with guns and, and being taken to the kind of James Bond building on the <laughs> river and to meet with intelligence officers, I mean, actual people with double O prefixes. <laughs> and, uh, and I was being told literally about assassination squads entering the country and, right. you know, with, uh, and so I mean, this stuff is, you know, now, happily, at this end of the story, it gives me a hell of a story to tell. Right. You know? But at that end of the story, it was no fun to live through. Well, you were told yeah. literally you couldn't go home right, by the British police, the special yes. branch. Yes. And they said that they basically considered you to be in more danger than anyone in the country except the Queen. Yeah, it was, uh, it was supposed to be the most dangerous protection. And I found out afterwards from, you know, because these people became my friends, a lot of the special branch right. policemen, that in Scotland Yard, this was considered to be the kind of the sexiest protection. You know, and the people right. who were doing this were kind of looked up to by their fellow officers mm-hmm. as doing the kind of best, biggest job. Right. So that's how dangerous it was. And yet the narrative that, that a lot of people saw at the time was mm. he's selling books, he's living large, he's living this glamorous lifestyle. Yeah. It, what you lay out in this book is that there were very outrageous incidents, things that would be hard for anyone to imagine a living person going yes, through. Yes, I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I agree. One of my worries was that if you look at it from the outside, it sometimes looked glamorous. You know, yeah. you show up places in an armored Jaguar and somebody leaps out and opens the door for you and everything, the pathways are cleared, you know, and people think, who the hell does he think he is? You know, I mean, he's just a writer. You know, what is it? Why does he deserve all this? It, that's human nature. But the funny thing is that from my side of the fence, it looked like jail. I was like I spent 10 years without the key of my front door in my pocket, you know, not allowed to walk out the door without, you know, a whole police rigmarole going on, not allowed to drive my own car. Um, not allowed to see my children or my friends without, you know, all kinds of arrangements being made. So, I mean, the simplest things in the world became problematic. Going to the movies, big problem. You snuck into the movies. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, they, as I say, the protection officers in the end became very friendly and sometimes even broke their senior officers' rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, their view was that, you know, if there's a movie going on, you come in when the lights have gone down and you leave before the lights have come up, mm-hmm. there's really no risk. To that at all. So they started breaking their boss's rules and taking me to, <laughs> taking me to the movies. Right. Not very often. I, I mentioned this 
to you before we went on the air, but in 1989, I was actually caught in Pakistan, yeah. in Islamabad, in the middle of a demonstration over your book in which the police ended up shooting rubber bullets and tear gas at this yeah. massive crowd. Yeah. My point here is that almost nobody, it appeared, had actually read your book. No, no, I think one, one of the things that's sort of bizarre about those early demonstrations is that, I mean, the book wasn't there. It wasn't there to read, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, but they didn't even know who I was. You know, they, they, they were just, they had just been aimed you know, in the way that can happen in India and Pakistan, that politicians and religious leaders can, you know, essentially put a mob on the street by snapping their fingers and, yeah. and just point them in that direction and say, go. And that's basically what had happened. Which brings us to present times where we see a similar thing playing out mm -hmm. in the streets throughout the Arab world. And I wonder what you think about this gentleman, this individual who's created well, the film that has, has sparked the riots that we're seeing yeah. play out now. I think it's a serious function of art to ask difficult questions and to make people have conversations they don't want to have necessarily. That's one thing. I mean, this, this film, which clearly is sort of a piece of garbage, you know, was, was clearly made in order to upset people. And I think he, he got what he wanted in spades. So we're in this strange situation where on the one hand we have to defend his, his rights to free speech, you know, because that's a right that we cherish, and rightly so. But we don't have to approve of him. You know, he's, uh, to, the right to free speech doesn't mean that you get a free pass. You can still be criticized. And clearly what he did was, was terrible. Is the criticism you see in the streets now throughout the Arab world, do you believe that that's warranted? No, because no, I think what ha what's happened in a lot of the Muslim world is one of the things I tried to say in the book that my incident was a kind of precursor to this. And one of the things we see is the growth of a kind of outrage industry, you know, that, that, uh, uh, of, that there are people in Muslim countries whose job it is to find things that they can use to inflame, you know, protests of this kind, which obviously have a broader anti-Western, anti-American purpose. They're not just about this film. You know, when you have the head of Hezbollah saying that this film was, was the work of U.S. intelligence, you know, you see that what's intended here is a larger anti-American project. It's not about the film really anymore. Mm -hmm. Your intention was never to insult or e even provoke anyone in the book. No, I mean, I think, I think lots and lots of people, including many Muslim readers of the book, finish the book and they say, well, where's the, where's the difficult right. bit? You know, because you, when you actually read the book, it's not there. I mean, a lot of what was said about the book actually isn't in the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Salman Rushdie, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you.